You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open God's Word to the Scripture reading this afternoon. We turn to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You and praise Your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under Him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. This afternoon we continue with our series of sermons on the Gospel according to Mark. I believe this is the ninth sermon in that series. And we come today to Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Beloved congregation, Christ our Lord, Though it seems much longer, it was only about 12 years ago that the internet became 
popular and widely used. Religious groups were among the first to take advantage of the new technology. But the avidly non-religious and anti-religious were also there. There were more than a few atheist websites, news groups, and mailing lists. Back in those days, on the odd occasion, I'd wade into one of these places and talk about faith and religion with these people. One thing that came up with regular predictability was the accusation, or the slur, you could say, that religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is for the weak. Christian faith is a crutch for the dimwits who can't otherwise get through life on their own strength. Now this way of thinking is nothing new. It's been around for a long, long time. If we go back to the 19th century, we hear the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche saying, quote, the Christian movement is a degeneracy movement composed of reject and refuse elements of every kind. According to Nietzsche, Christianity is made up of rejects and the garbage of humanity. Back in the 20th century, not so long ago, the founder of CNN, Ted Turner, put it a different way when he said that Christianity is a religion for losers. And if we have regular contact with the unbelieving world, we hear these kinds of things more often. Though usually, they're veiled in subtlety. And we'd like to believe that this doesn't bother us. However, the fact that North American Christianity spends so much time and effort in putting the spotlight on famous believing athletes, politicians, and entertainers, that should tell us otherwise. Christians don't want to be known as belonging to a movement of rejects and losers. We want to be cool, healthy. We want to be prosperous and and good-looking. We bulk at the idea of being outcasts. Our text this afternoon challenges us on this very point. As the Lord Jesus carries out His earthly ministry, He turns the expectations and norms of His culture upside down. He challenges the religious leaders of His day, the thinking of His day. And He also brings a challenge to us living 2,000 years later. To us who are Canadians living in this gentle country of Canada. But He also challenges us who are Canadian Reformed believers in this Langley Canadian Reformed Church a church with its own subculture, a church with its own expectations and norms. We'll see that our text this afternoon gives the answer to the question, who did Jesus come to call? And in this passage, we'll see, first of all, a surprising choice, second, a surly rebuke, and then finally, a stunning response. When we left him last time, a couple weeks ago, The Lord Jesus was in His house at Capernaum. You may remember, He was inside the house and His roof was destroyed. Paralytic was let down into the house in front of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus healed that paralytic. 
had a little bit of a confrontation with the Pharisees at that time. And at the end of it, everybody was left in awe. It was amazing. Now when we come to verse 13, we're not that far away from that last scene. We're still in Capernaum. And you may remember that Capernaum was located next to the Sea of Galilee. That's the lake that's referred to in this verse. The Lord Jesus went out for a walk. And as often happens soon, a crowd gathered round Him. And He used the opportunity to continue with His teaching and preaching ministry. But then, as He walked along, He came to a tax office or a tax booth. Now to understand this and all that follows, we have to know something about the system of taxes in those days and how that worked. Now there were several different kinds of taxes, but this passage is referring to the Roman customs system. Basically, when goods moved around across territorial borders, the Roman Empire would get a cut. And the way this worked was that the tax collection would be entrusted to certain men, and these men were known as tax farmers. These tax farmers, they were very wealthy men before they had even been in this business. And then they would use their wealth to bid for the right to collect taxes in a certain region. The highest bidder would then pay Rome in advance and then go to work to make his living. He might do all the work himself, or more likely he might hire others to do the work for him. And the system, even though it was theoretically regulated, it encouraged and it allowed dishonesty and fraud. The tax farmers would charge as much as they could get away with without losing their lives. Consequently, these men were regarded as lowlifes by most Jews. The Jews hated the Romans to begin with, as you well know. But this system, this didn't make things any better. It didn't improve things. If you want something of a contemporary parallel, you can think of bylaw enforcement officers who write up parking tickets. Imagine all the abuse these men and women have to put up with every day. People yelling at them, people abusing them. And take it a step further and imagine that these people worked for an oppressive foreign regime. Imagine being in a an American bylaw enforcement officer in Iraq. There you go. Then you have an idea of what it was like. These were some of the least popular and most hated people in their culture. Well, sure, they, they chose that line of work and they made a killing from it, but that only made them more hated than ever. And there was a tax office in Capernaum because it was at a, a crossroads for trade. It sat at the border of several different regions. As, as people would pass from one region to another, the local tax farmer would take his cut. And Levi, also known as Matthew, was one of these tax farmers. At least he worked for one of these tax farmers. Not sure which. And this man, who shared a name with the patriarch, whose descendants would become priests, this Levi was about anything but sacrifices. He wasn't interested in serving others. His like 
were typically associated with prostitutes, robbers, and other such people. Levi was the scum of the scum to be detested and reviled. This was the Levi that the Lord Jesus spotted as he walked along the Sea of Galilee. This is the Levi that the Lord Jesus spoke to. He commanded him, follow me. In other words, the Lord Jesus was telling Levi to become one of his disciples. Rabbi Jesus was taking another disciple for himself in just the same way as he had with Andrew, Peter, James, and John in chapter 1. And while those four, they weren't exactly the cream of the crop as far as education goes, they were still respectable Jewish men. Fishing was honest labor. But Levi? Those who were with Jesus when he did this, they must have thought that he was out of his mind. I mean, Levi was lower than low. A pig farmer might have found more respect. But Jesus decides to call him to be a disciple. And later on, he would even be appointed as an apostle. Not so long ago, this congregation was without a second pastor. Imagine if the calling committee had called a congregational meeting and then introduced you to your new prospective co-pastor, a man they had picked up earlier that afternoon from a crack house in Wally. He's been cleaning for six hours. Now, I know the analogy doesn't exactly fit, but your sense of shock would be the same as what the people with Jesus would have felt. Jesus is turning their expectations upside down. They figure that Jesus would act like a respectable rabbi and He would choose people to follow Him who have some class, who have some dignity. Instead, He makes the most surprising choice. Levi the tax collector, scum of the earth extraordinaire. Even more surprising when He calls Him He comes. Mark tells us Levi got up and followed him. There's no questioning. There's no back and forth. He just gets up and follows Jesus. Becomes his disciple. Now it appears that when Simon and Andrew and James and John, when they became Jesus' disciples, from time to time they would still go back to their old trade of fishing. But with Levi, there was no going back. No possibility. Once he followed Jesus, he could never go back to being a tax collector. By walking away, he'd turn his back on it forever. You see, the Romans would never give him his job back. In other words, this was not a light-hearted thing to do. Spontaneous, spur of the moment. Oh, well, sure, why not? Following Jesus would have an impact on the rest of his life. And the first thing that Levi does as a disciple of Jesus is he throws a dinner party for him. And we know from the way Mark puts his Greek here that this was a grand celebration. They weren't eating mac and cheese. This was a grand feast. And then another surprise gets thrown at us when we read about who gets invited to this banquet. Of course, there's Jesus and His disciples But then we read that there were also many tax collectors and sinners. 
people who also followed Jesus. We already know about these tax collectors and what sort of people they were considered to be. But who are these sinners? You may notice, if you look in your Bible, you may notice that the NIV has quotation marks around the word sinners in verses 15 and 16. There's a good reason for that. The reason has to do with the outlook of the Pharisees. These were people who were regarded as sinners by the Pharisees because they simply didn't fit in. The Pharisees and their followers, they were the righteous. And all those others, well, they were the sinners. didn't matter if they were Jews, they were still sinners. Us and them, righteous sinners. These people over here, they didn't follow all the rigid laws and rituals of the Pharisees. And more than likely, they were a little bit shady as far as morals go. And so if you want, when our text says sinners, you could read that as saying losers or rejects with quotation marks around it. These were people who were regarded as outcasts. They didn't fit in with the right people. And so there sits our Lord eating and drinking with the losers and rejects. The exalted King of heaven and earth is celebrating with the people you warn your children about, the people you hope your children never become. He sets aside all His glory to do something amazing. Eat and drink and celebrate with the lowly. You see, He doesn't care about their social status. He cares about them. I think you can see how God's Word challenges us here this afternoon. Let's open up our Bibles and have a look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Can't help but think of a passage like this when you... Look at what's happening here in Mark. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Humility. The Gospel leads us to humility before God and before one another. Romans 12.16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And this was most powerfully shown to us in Christ's ministry on earth. And it's also to be the way of life of those who are in Christ, who believe in Him, who are united to Him by His Spirit. God's Word also challenges us here about our fatalism. 
You might think it's strange to speak about fatalism, especially since we believe in God and we believe in His power. We heard a sermon about that this morning, that we believe in God the Father Almighty. But you know what? The Jews believed the same thing in their day. They believed that God was sovereign, that God was powerful, but yet many of them were cynical and pessimistic about the possibility that people's lives could be changed and transformed. They had the attitude that once you were a tax collector or a sinner, you were always painted black. You were always to be regarded with suspicion. That's fatalism. When someone says that it's impossible for a sinner to repent and be transformed, that's fatalistic thinking. And it's entirely unbiblical. Verse 15 tells us that these folks followed Jesus. That means that they had repented of their sins and they they were going to be His disciples. They had turned their backs on their old way of life and they had been forgiven. And that's why when the Lord Jesus eats with them, He's not condoning a sinful lifestyle. He's attesting that these people and their lives have been transformed. What's impossible with man is possible with God. By eating with them, Jesus was proclaiming that the impossible had happened. Intimate fellowship and friendship had come to the house of Levi. And so, when the Good Shepherd brings back lost sheep, like we've witnessed here this afternoon, who are we to be cynical? When those who have been lost have repented and been forgiven, who are we to continue painting these white sheep black? Rather, like the Lord Jesus, we, we welcome them back into the intimate fellowship and friendship of God's house. It's a time of celebrating God's good news for them and for us. Sinners are received by God in grace. But yet there are often those who who cannot accept this. And we'll see that as we consider the surly rebuke in our passage. Last time we noticed the teachers of the law who were beginning to shadow the Lord Jesus everywhere He went. And of course, here they are again. And we're going to see them more often in coming sermons. And here they they followed the Lord Jesus to Levi's house. From the looks of things, they, they weren't invited in. And even if they had been invited in, they wouldn't have accepted. And we'll look at why in just a second. For now, you can just visualize it. You can imagine these Pharisees milling around the front of Levi's house and, and watching. Oh, hey, look, hey, there's so-and-so. Did you hear what he did last week? Oh, there's that woman. You know what I saw her doing yesterday? It would have been a regular who's who of the sin circuit in Capernaum. The pharisaical tongues would have been wagging away. Because what Jesus was doing was absolutely scandalous. A respectable rabbi would never, ever eat with tax collectors and so-called sinners. 
The Pharisees would never even consider doing something like that. Not even for a minute. That's because according to the Pharisees, tax collectors and so-called sinners, they were unclean people. Ritually unclean. Though a careful reading of God's law might give a different conclusion, the Pharisees were convinced that these people were ritually impure. They may as well have been lepers. Certainly they were moral lepers. Proper, upstanding Jews were supposed to keep their distance from these sorts of people and certainly never, ever eat with them. And that way of thinking drives these Pharisees to confront the disciples with the question of why Jesus does such scandalous things. And note that they don't ask Jesus Himself. Instead, they go to His disciples and and they confront them. And perhaps in doing this, they wanted to wake up the disciples to the fact that their rabbi is a revolutionary. Shouldn't follow Him. You shouldn't trust Him. After all, look what He's doing to our culture. Look what He's doing to our norms and expectations. You've really got to have second thoughts about following a rabbi like this. Don't you see it? And so they ask their question, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the way the question is asked in the original, it's clear that this is not a a genuine question. That they're after a Real answer, this is a snarky, surly rebuke. They're waving their finger at Jesus and His disciples. Pharisees don't really care about the reason why He does this. All they know is that it's wrong. And He has to be stopped, and His disciples have to be turned away from Him. The Pharisees are blind to the character of God's kingdom. They expected God's kingdom to come with power and might. Political kingdom. Power and might defined according to their own terms. They expected glory and they they expected their culture of righteousness to be vindicated. Their Jewish club with all its rules and regulations would be shown to be right and all others would be shown to be wrong. That's what drives their words here in Mark 2. In the face of that, the Lord Jesus came to show and teach something completely different. The truth about the kingdom of God. The truth is that the kingdom of God is the place where the way down is the way up. The kingdom is the place where to be low is to be high. The kingdom is the place where the broken heart is the healed heart. And the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The kingdom is the place where to give is to receive. And where to bear the cross is to wear the crown. It's the place where one dies in order that one may live. The Lord Jesus ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors to show that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with self-righteous, and self-absorbed, narcissistic cultures, even when that culture is found among God's people. They asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And in asking, they rebuked not merely some renegade Jewish rabbi, but they rebuked the kingdom of God and all that it represents, including and especially God Himself and His wisdom. And their question also exposes the stubborn, glory-seeking old nature with which all of us struggle. Perhaps we wonder from time to time, we probably would never say it out loud, what was the Lord thinking when He brought that person into our church? Perhaps we're more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. And that's also why we need to listen carefully to Jesus' stunning response there in verse 17. Though it appears that they tried to keep Jesus out of the loop, He overheard what the Pharisees were saying to His disciples. And He wasn't going to let this go. Now now was the time to speak up and set them straight on what He was all about. The first thing He said is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The Lord Jesus is using an illustration or a word picture to make a point. And what he does here is he takes the starting position of the Pharisees. Namely, that they are the completely healthy ones. And those, those other people, they're the sick ones. He takes that starting point and then he works from there. He's saying, if you folks are healthy, obviously I don't need to be among you. I'm a doctor. And a doctor needs to be right in there with the sick people if he's going to help them, if he's going to be a doctor. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know what, if your assumptions are accurate, and this is right where I need to be. I need to be in Levi's house with all these rejects and people you think are losers. And for us today, the Lord Jesus is saying that if we think we're doing all right, if we think that we're healthy as individuals and as a church, then He has no place here among us. To put it another way, when we think we've arrived, Jesus is out the door and down the road. And then we read some of the most powerful Gospel words in the Bible. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the crux of the matter. Who Jesus came to call. Who did the Lord Jesus come to save? The call of the Gospel is not given to the righteous, to the ones who think themselves to be worthy and who pride themselves on their righteousness and their respectability. Instead, the Lord Jesus comes to those who are unworthy and to those who know it. He comes to those who know their desperate need for a Savior. Jesus came to call the sinners, the lost, the straying, the burdened, the hungry, and the thirsty. These are the ones whom our Savior came to call. Notice that in verse 17, the NIV takes the quotation marks off the word sinners. It's because here the Lord Jesus is using the word in the broader sense. See, He's not just talking about the people that the Pharisees look at as rejects and losers. Here He's speaking about people 
who have sinned against the Holy God. Jesus is speaking about people who know themselves to have fallen short of the glory of God. People who know themselves to be offenders and debtors. These are the people who flee to the cross of Jesus Christ, despairing of their own righteousness and their own worthiness. The Lord Jesus came to call sinners. This afternoon He is calling us again. He's calling each and every one of us, young and old, even the children. He's calling all of us to faith and repentance. We often value keeping up appearances and looking respectable to others. The Lord Jesus tells us this afternoon that He did not come to call such people. We often value being with the right crowd and working hard. The Lord Jesus proclaims that these things are not on His calling agenda. The Savior turns it all upside down. He says the only thing that matters is for you to see your total need for Him and humbly flee to Him. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's calling us to cast contempt on all our pride and look to Him alone. He's calling us away from ourselves. Calling us to acknowledge our utter unworthiness, our total unrighteousness, and His all-surpassing worth. Brothers and sisters, this is the Savior we need. The only Savior. Your Savior. You know, Frederick Nietzsche and Ted Turner were right. The Christian faith is for losers. It's for those who have lost sight of the lie of their own righteousness and have completely embraced Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It's for losers. It's for those who have lost their own life so as to find life in Christ. He came to call the losers. Me. You. Us. Let's heed His call. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we are sinners entirely unworthy of Your love and grace. Of ourselves, we have no righteousness whatsoever. We are indeed so desperately poor and needy. O Father, we flee to the great Doctor, to the One who came to call sinners. Lord Jesus, we fall at Your feet and we implore You to have mercy on us. Eat, and drink with us sinners. Relieve our hunger with Your broken body and relieve our thirst with Your shed blood. Feast with us today and every day until the great feast arrives. Father, teach us to repent of all our self-righteousness. Lord God, we pray that You would strengthen us to believe the Gospel Help us to serve You according to Your Word. We pray for more grace that our lives would more and more be conformed to the image of Your Son. 
Help us too with Your Spirit so that we would warmly embrace everyone You call into Your kingdom. With Your Word, we pray that You would bring more light to our eyes. We pray that You would soften our hard hearts so that Your name would be glorified more and more through us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Doctor. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.